0: This is a special Uncommon Sense podcast for 3 FM with Amy Mullins. The interview you're about to hear is with historian and author Dr Anna Clark. Anna joined me to discuss her new book, Making Australian History. Anna takes a look at the history of Australian history, as well as Australia's changing national story and the people who make it. And you are tuned in to Uncommon Sense on 3 FM with me, Amy Mullins. It is my absolute pleasure to welcome onto the program Anna Clark, who is a historian and an author of a number of books. She's also edited and co-written a number of books, including some that you may be familiar with, The History Wars, which she co-wrote with Stuart McIntyre. She's also written a range of other books, including History's Children, Private Lives, Public History, and her latest book is called Making Australian History, which is out through Penguin. I think the title is pretty self explanatory, but we're going to be talking about the history of Australian history. So I welcome Anna onto the program now and thank her so much for joining me. Hi there, Anna. G'day, Amy. It's really nice to chat with you today. It's wonderful to speak with you. And I should also mention to everyone listening that you are uh, what we would call a practicing historian or a professional historian, someone who's trained up in the discipline of capital H history. Uh, so that's one of the perspectives of which you're coming from today and, and certainly a clear one that you write this book through.
1: Mm, yeah, that's right. I've um, had the the kind of education from uh, everyone else's experience of mandatory history in school and it uh, took me a little while to find my feet there at university but when I did I really loved history and loved Australian history and I guess I've been thinking about it and pushing against it as well as as well as absorbing it since yeah it certainly can be
0: that complex relationship to and with history for any historian but certainly to Australian history mm. as we'll discover in this book because clearly the way that Australia's Indigenous peoples have been treated and have been essentially excluded from our history up until only very recently has been a major issue and it's one that you have grappled with very clearly and head-on mm. and confidently in this book. But first of all, let's just go right to the start of the title and, and also the concepts that we're dealing with here. Because history, the capital H, and history with a lowercase are different. And it's kind of important to think about it because those issues come up in this book. And I think it would be great to also define historiography for anyone who isn't familiar with the term.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, And obviously, you know, we should take these definitions. Um, They're kind of useful because they help us think about capital H history and lowercase history and, you know, maybe even the past as well in historiography. But, of course, um, we don't want to be too rigid. Uh, and so I was, while I was trying to define the difference between history, capital H history, which I've defined as the sort of the subject of history that we're familiar with from our schooling and in universities and it's practised by professional historians, it has established traditions and schools uh, of thought and even, you know, canons, um, I distinguish that from, I guess, the more, more kind of vernacular history making that might go on in our communities and in our families. Um, but there's no hierarchy there in my mind. I'm sort of interested in the relationship between, you know, um, an oral history of Aboriginal child removal, for example, with a history discipline that excluded that perspective for so long. So it would be very difficult to say that one is better than the other, you know, in that moment, because obviously, um, that vernacular history making was doing much more deliberate Australian history work than the history profession at that time. Um, but the def- definition is, is, I think, an important one to at least try and make. Between capital H history and that and the lowercase everyday history making that, that many of us might be more familiar with from our family lives and our community lives. To get to your question on historiography, that's another one where you know uh, definition is important, but it's also maybe not doesn't do enough because traditionally historiography means the histories that have been written in the past. So if we think about all of Australian history that has been written up until now, you would call that Australian historiography. I guess the, first, the, the question I'm posing in our book, which comes back to the previous thing about definitions between capital H history and lowercase history, is what is historiography, what does that definition of historiography not include? And if it doesn't include other forms of history making outside that kind of written canon of Australian history, what's not getting in there? And what do we do? We need to broaden our definition of historiography? I think that's a conversation that threads throughout the book.
0: Absolutely. And um, that kind of reflects so clearly in the book because the book is structured in a kind of non-traditional way, you would say, when you're thinking about a history book, mm. uh, because it's not necessarily following this, as you point out, chronology that has a clear beginning and a clear end. Neither does it have... Um, a super narrowly defined theme. Um, You do structure it by kind of themes or or sources, Mm. Uh, but even the sources that you're using are these history-making sources. Some of them are traditionally you would think of as a traditional history book or text, and then others might be lectures or interviews or images like, for example, rock art. And, you know, this is a very different way, a non-traditional way, you would say, of doing history and including, being inclusive Mm. of other types of history making. So I wonder if you could share with us your thinking behind that and how you've written the book based on those chapters and the
1: way that it's structured. Yeah, thanks, Amy. I had wanted to write a history of Australian history for quite a long time. I've been studying debates over Australian history, what we might call the history wars, for quite a long time. And particularly, you know, how is history taught in schools and sort of debates between politicians about Australian history? And, you know, you might be familiar with, you know, change the date movement and so on. Why is Australian history contested? And in that kind of process of, of, of research, I became very struck by the fact that, you know, despite all this debate about Australian history, there wasn't really an account of it over time. So even though we're very aware that history is revised and it's contested, there wasn't any sort of narrative of that contest or revision over a really long period of time, you know, since the 19th or 18th century. So I wanted to do that. I wanted to tell that story of Australian history. But then, of course, once I got to starting that, this is getting back to your question about definition again, what do you include as an example of Australian history? Like, who have been Australian Australia's history makers and, and what have been their texts? And so you could write a history of all of the history books that have been written, but that doesn't include then obviously other forms of history making have taken place in Australia over that time. And one particular example you mentioned there, um, rock art, one particular example is, of course, you know, contact art, where if you think of those you know, sort of very extensive journals written by uh, explorers and colonists in Australia in the 17th and 18th centuries. The journals of James Cook, for example, or the accounts of various colonists such as you know Collins or Watkin Tench, they're really vivid and they're really important texts of, of Australian history. But they're only from one side. They're only from one view, the view from the boat. And of course, Aboriginal people were recording history at that time and passing on accounts of the past like historians do at that time as well. So I was thinking, how do we include Indigenous forms of history making and indeed Indigenous temporalities and Indigenous historians in this account of Australian history? And contact art is just one example where you can do that of of where you think about, oh, of course, you know, that moment of contact which has been described in so many books of Australian history was also described in many non-books of Australian history by Indigenous historians and told since. And I'm really interested in how the story of Australian history might break out of those assumptions about what is history and what's a historical text and importantly, who's a historian.
0: And you bring those issues in in your first two chapters Mm. and um, there is the second chapter on contact um, and before that beginnings. And I was really interested in your discussion of this idea that pre-colonial Australia was said to be devoid of capital H history mm. and that really people were thinking that prehistory was something that you would leave to geologists and archaeologists and paleontologists and that wasn't the domain of a historian. Yeah. And how things have clearly, thankfully, changed. But also the early way of thinking about contact history was this idea of pale and I love the kind of idea of contact zones, which you referenced from Mary Louise Pratt as well. Mm. This idea that there's a lot of complexity and dynamism happening between Aboriginal people and also the Europeans who came over to colonise this continent. You know that it wasn't just necessarily this passive process that seems to be played out in these floats that you bring up um, on history days that commemorate mm. the time that the first fleet landed. You know, there's there's a lot of complexity there. So I wondered if you could, you know, tease out that idea a bit more about contact and also how Aboriginal history has been, I guess, how we've seen it differently over time.
1: Yeah, One of the things I became really struck by in reading a lot of these early European and British texts of Australian history is how interested many of them were with their surroundings and the people's they, you know, Aboriginal people that they, that they met. And there was this kind of window of really intense curiosity in the late 18th and early 19th centuries of language and translation. And and that's not to say that it wasn't problematic. Obviously it was, but there is a real kind of palpable curiosity, as you say, a kind of parley, where there's an attempt, there's a moment where both sides of the colonial encounter are trying to kind of understand each other. But at some point in the kind of mid 19th century, um, and this is partly, I think there's a sense that contact and colonisation will become inevitable. And in the beginning, it's not inevitable. You know, the the colony is is deeply precarious. It's on the other side of the world. Um, Supply ships crash. The colony's on the verge of starvation. And in fact, the governor, Arthur Phillip, sends over some convict rope makers to sit with Aboriginal women to ask them to teach them to learn how to make fishing lines so they might fish and catch some fish because they're literally on the verge of starvation. But that precariousness over time changes and, in fact, increasingly it becomes the Aboriginal communities around Sydney that become much more negatively affected by colonisation and the smallpox epidemic is, is one kind of catastrophic example of that. But as the colonists become increasingly confident about the colonial project, the history changes to sort of get less interested and becomes less interested in Aboriginal histories and accounts and the sense that Australian history begins with colonisation and that curiosity of Aboriginal culture becomes, you know, the domain of of something else outside history. History itself is part of the colonial project then uh, and that curiosity kind of leaves the text. You don't find much reference to Aboriginal people in history texts from the sort of mid-19th century and certainly up until the end of the 20th century. And I found it really interesting to see how history became kind of part of the architecture of colonisation and also nation building that excluded Aboriginal people, increasingly excluded Aboriginal people, and also excluded things that weren't considered to be positive markers of progress, such as colonial violence and so on. So in these early parts of the 19th and mid-19th century, there's actually a lot of history, historiography, includes these sort of terrible episodes of colonial violence. But by the end of the 19th century, around federation, for example, colonial violence isn't considered to be sort of, you know, a proud, uplifting narrative of a sort of a series of colonies that's about to become a nation. It's not considered to be worthy of the material of a national history. So even in the course of one century of history making in Australia, you can see this huge shift in how Australian history changes its register of Indigenous people and Indigenous histories and also what is and isn't history.
0: You also bring into this the idea that even Australia's past in terms of its convict origins has been something of a source of shame or something that seemed to be skated over Mm. you do say some families developed fictional family trees (laughs) to hide their connections to that element of the nation's past so you know it's not just that kind of joke that South Australians make about how you know they're not from convicts um, and everyone else is, and apparently that's a you know, thing, something to be proud of. <laughs> yeah. um, but it's, there's a lot more to it than that. And I, you know, I was quite interested in that idea that, as you point out, there's a lot of record keeping of that time and down to what an individual convict looked like and their distinctive markers. But then a lot of history has deemed that to be not worthy of coverage or, or
1: consideration until fairly recently. Yeah, that's right. It's interesting that that overlaps actually with a lot of the editing out of colonial violence happens at the same time as the editing out of convict history. There, There are certain things that shouldn't be included in a national story because they're not quite really deemed kind of respectable enough or worthy enough. Um, And there's a really interesting article by a historian called um, Tom Griffiths about precisely that, that the the forgetting of colonial violence and the forgetting of convict life is a real feature of Australian history, um, especially around federation, because it was considered to be really problematic. And one of the things that is so interesting, as you point out, is that, of course, there are heaps of records of convict life, just as there are lots of accounts of colonial violence. So it's not a question of that there isn't the history there or that there aren't the sources there. What comes down to the question of why aren't you listening? What What is it about Australian history that means that these perspectives and accounts are being edited out essentially?
0: Yeah. This brings us to a really interesting point in the discipline of history in the 19th century where there's this professionalisation of history So there are a number of amateur historians and even journalists who wrote history. There are a whole kind of diverse range of Sources prior to that and authors of history. And then we see this link between the professionalisation of history and the nation state and this concept of a nation and Australia being one of those nations. That's right. And kind of building that national story. So could you expound a bit on that link and why it's developed that way
1: and what its significance is to us? One of the interesting things about the 19th century in terms of Australian history is that the Australian nation and nationalism emerged at the same time as the kind of professionalization of the history discipline as as you mentioned. And so while a lot of history up until then had really been written, you know, by in the form of colonial diaries or by amateur historians um, and, and sort of you know diarists and, and writers. By the late 19th century, there's a sense that history is kind of one of the sciences, actually, and that there needs to be a sort of a training for history, that you can't just know how to do it, that there are rules to be followed and that there are sources, only certain sources that you can use, Um, and there are certain kind of skills that historians need training for, such as being able to analyse and critique sources, be able to, you know, understand, you know, what is an archive and how to use it and so on. And so at the moment that Australia is kind of having a sense of itself, at the same time there's a sense of kind of national consciousness emerging in Australia, the history profession is emerging at the same time. And they develop a very interesting relationship where the history profession sort of needs the nation because that helps historians have authority, really. If you think about the emergence of um, education at the same time, history is one of the subjects in the newly formed education departments and in, in schools. How do we teach history? Oh, we need historians to write history textbooks. Um, conversely, the nation, which is only just starting, there's no real kind of strong sense of, of that Australia has a legacy, needs history to write its story, so that Australia has a kind of a a permanence or a legitimacy. And so this kind of very curious relationship between historians and the nation emerges really around the sort of late 19th century and federation. And it has absolutely kind of informed... I I wonder if it's still playing out today, you know, the fact that the history wars are still so sort of heated is perhaps a reflection of that close relationship between the history profession and the nation.
0: Yeah, it's got this validating effect mm. on certain historians more than others. And it's clear, you know, even in some of those history wars, I mean, you you bring out a whole range of issues that are very contested across Australian history, one of them being the Anzac legend and the way that we commemorate and remember those who fought in World War One, but also World War II. And I, I liked how nuanced your points are and how balanced they are because it is an area that gets very emotive because it is personal mm. to many people, because so many people have personal and family histories caught up in the national story yep. and the national history. And you drew that out really well in that chapter. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about the Anzac story that you say is both sentimental, as well as being generated and promoted by governments and interest groups and being instrumentalized And the fact that there is more complexity to it and I guess that you can't necessarily simplify it down to something being, you know, a militarisation and only that, that there are multiple dimensions.
1: Yeah, that's right. I, and I wonder if the, the easiest way of doing this is from personal experience. You know, I, I've certainly, during the course of my research, gone to an ANZAC service and sort of felt incredibly moved by the occasion. But at the same time, I kind of have my history hat on or my critical history hat on going, why are you being moved? You know, um, what what does this mean? And I think that curious, I suppose, relationship between the personal and the political plays out, you know, not only today, as we've seen with the kind of resurgence of Anzac popularity and and the political interventions in recent months by the Minister for Education suggesting that you know Anzac shouldn't be taught as a contested idea. It goes back to this beginning that you that you that you described there in your little intro, the Anzac legend, if you like, and Anzac Day emerged out of a real thing that was experienced by real people um, and people who had back in Australia as well as the service um, servicemen who and women who who survived it who had nowhere to mourn because it was overseas. And so the idea of an Anzac Day where you remember and reflect um, and that there are war memorials all over the country, that's to real people Um, and the loss was genuine. That's not to say that our attachment and affections don't change over time. You know, during the Vietnam War, for example, many people thought that Anzac Day would become totally moribund. And in recent years, the huge amounts of government resourcing to to military commemoration in Australia is kind of, is staggering. Like um, for the 100th anniversary of World War I, for example, Australia spent more on those commemorations than every other World War I nation combined, which gives you an indication of how politics plays a part in this kind of popularity and in this sort of public memory, if you like. But at the same time, there's appetite there. And I don't think we can deny that. And, you know, the heaps of money got spent into the kind of commemoration of, you know, the centenary of federation. And there wasn't that much sort of public interest in that, because there's not a lot of actual genuine connections. So while the um, public and political commemoration is a real thing, and I think, you know, we need to Bear that in mind when we're looking at why Anzac Day is so popular. Obviously, it's it's because partly because there's money involved and there's politics involved, but at the same time, there are also people involved um, and people who have interesting attachments to these stories. And the reason why these stories are often so powerful is because it was genuinely ordinary people who took part in these events. You know, it wasn't just a ruler or a leader; it was just an everyday person, and so their stories do connect. So there's a there's a really interesting relationship between genuine connection across time and uh, between people, um, and that kind of confection that you that you noted by governments to try and amplify that legend, if you like.
0: Yes, and you bring this up in the, that chapter as well: the idea that even those who were veterans who returned home, they had differing relationships to ANZAC, to commemoration. Absolutely, Yeah, some people didn't want to engage themselves in it at all. No. Um, mainly because sometimes I think it was so painful and any idea that we could potentially glorify war, some people burned their medals yeah, when absolutely. they got home. Um,
1: my granddad chucked out all his medals after World War Two. He didn't want a bar of it. Mm. But at the same time... I think what's important to, to also understand is that even people who go to the Anzac marches and wave flags and, and ostensibly that's an image of national pride, even among those people there's an understanding of the complexity of this moment, that it's not necessarily just a celebration, that it can also be, like you said, a, a sort of a, a mood of, of the hopelessness of war. And what what's dangerous is misreading this collective memory just as one thing when it's actually many things mm. at once.
0: Yes. And I often feel that Remembrance Day has more of that tone yeah. across it. Yeah, that's right. You know, and to me, Anzac Day is like Remembrance Day, but I think sometimes there is that confusion and mm. maybe it is because of the way that government intervenes mm. in the process. Mm.
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: One of the other parts to that story is also the idea of the digger and, you know, the way that there are agents of history in Australia's history and that it's often that men are in this kind of public part of history and women are in this private domain and that they're constrained by the patriarchal system that they're operating in, which is clearly true. Mm. But it means that there's been this massive distortion in the way that history is recounted and that women have often been completely ignored essentially in a lot of our histories. And you've got um, a really excellent chapter on gender in this book. And you take us through the way that women's history was kind of brought back in, but then also transformed into a kind of more broader field of gender studies. And I'd really love to start at the start of that chapter, just because it's so poignant in terms of looking at the source book that you reference and just how significant it is and was to Australian history and to also feminism and the way of thinking of women's role in Australia's history.
1: Yeah. Thanks, Amy. I look at the text Creating a Nation by Marilyn Lake, Marion Courtley, Patricia Grimshaw and Anne McGrath, which was the first sort of general history of Australia that had been written from a gender perspective. And it's kind of doesn't seem that monumental now when we think about it, because of course you could write an Australian history a gendered Australian history now it, it doesn't seem like a lens that would be too difficult to put on Australian history but in the time it was at the time it was really radical and in fact there was some pushback by fellow historians who said no you can't write a gendered history of Australia because the main function of a national history is the domain of men and i'm sorry if women weren't in it but that's just it and the argument of these historians was to say well okay there are men, you know, writing laws and declaring war, but who's allowing them to go into the office? Who's cleaning the office? Who are the women who are affected by the war? And why is it that women can vote or can't vote or, you know, find it very difficult to get in to be represented in parliament and so on? And all of these sort of questions, of course, highlight that these gender histories, that histories of gender are absolutely crucial to telling that ostensibly objective male public history of Australia that doesn't include women. Why doesn't it include women? That's what this text basically asks. And in the process of writing women back into the national story, they really show that not only is Australian history completely shaped by gender, i.e. the inclusion and exclusion of women at various points in time, but The actual field of Australian history itself, that capital H history uh, that we spoke about earlier, is also shaped unquestionably by gender. When you think about the kind of canon of Australian history, it's mostly men. And why is that? Why is national history considered to be a kind of a, that males are considered to be the sort of taken for granted category, not only in the sort of story of Australia itself, but also in the history making?
0: Well, you do point that out as there are so many, I guess, legends, quote unquote, of Australian history. And they're pretty much usually always the men who are getting mm. told, recounted and referenced and quoted or even I remember you citing recent books about history and how some of those books actually completely disregard women and, you know, maybe a few women are just listed, but not really meaningfully included. Yeah, It doesn't necessarily represent the reality, though, does it, that women haven't been history makers and haven't even engaged in
1: the discipline of history because they certainly have been. That's right. And one of the difficult things about writing this chapter and the reason why it sort of ended up being a chapter the way it was is because, you know, I was really struck by reading histories from, you know, really, I suppose, the early 19th century up until the sort of 1960s, essentially. So that's a good, you know, 160 years of, a, of, of history, Australian histories. It's really hard to find any by women. There are occasional ones. And That made me think, do we need to broaden the category of who is a historian and what is history? And clearly we do because women are making histories all the time. Women are sharing stories on the veranda or around the kitchen table. Women are often the kind of history keepers in their family. So obviously there's plenty of history making being done, but what is it? What's the architecture of the discipline that prevented women to be acknowledged as national historians?
0: Yeah, and one of the issues that comes up i know for many and it depends on the period of history you're looking at but for example i was looking at mid 19th century history and there were primary sources in the area i was looking for that were written by women but there were far fewer of them than existed for men and certainly it became even more difficult when you were looking at migrant histories people who had come to australia from china for example Absolutely.
1: Yeah. It's a huge issue. Um, I think that the sort of, you know, the, the understanding of what's an archive and how do we access those stories. And it again, it comes back to that question of who are we listening to as historians? Yeah, I'm using we as a, as, a, as a sort of history profession. Who are we listening to? Because obviously those stories are out there, right? Uh, it's not that they're not there, they are there, but why aren't they being listened to is 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 really powerful. And I think one of the interesting things about gender history and, and the sort of feminist history project from the 1960s and 70s is how not only did it push at the discipline in terms of encouraging and demanding that women be listened to, but it was also in in its kind of critical campaign, it was also open, some people might argue with the extent of its openness, but it was also open to kind of critical self-reflection itself. So when critiques came from Aboriginal women, for example, and migrant women suggesting that feminist history was, was all well and good, but it was still essentially pretty white, the Feminist History Project tended to take that on in a really open, I think, way of engaging with some of these critiques and so it's been in a sense it's been a very revisionist project feminist history and it has taken on that kind of criticism critical self-reflection as part of its evolution which i find really interesting
0: yeah and it's why a lot of people point out that there isn't some bible of feminism where this is the one line that everyone mm. you know subscribes to there is so much difference divergence and kind of disagreement and debate. And it's clear that the authors of the book that you are citing here were also doing that themselves in their own practices and still are. And you, you also bring out the kind of development of intersectionality as being a product of this disagreement and debate within feminism. So, yeah, I wonder what your reflections are in terms of how women who were these early pioneers in pushing for a different way of doing history and actually transforming the discipline. You know, did they transform the discipline of history? Because that's something you quote from Joy DeMucey on, and I'm really keen to know where you've landed on that.
1: Yeah, I I mean, I think they have transformed the discipline uh, because it would be very hard, I think, now to learn about Australian history and not think about it from a feminist perspective. And those lenses that I mentioned earlier that probably, I'm 43 now... I might be the first generation of students for whom the lenses of feminism, Indigenous perspectives, migrant perspectives might come before kind of labour and class or at least alongside labour and class and our familiarity with the kind of cultural turn, that sort of critical self-reflection of history not necessarily being an objective truth but being laden with subjectivity that feels quite natural to me. And I think that naturalness of that sort of language and I suppose lexicon (laughs) comes back to the success of the Feminist History Project. And that's not to say that it's not problematic and it's not limited in its own way. I I really, you know, you only have to read um, some of the amazing work of, you know, Chelsea Watego or Eileen Morton Robinson to understand that the university is still very much part of the colony and, and whose voices are listened to and whose voices are, are, are speaking loudly um, is still pr- pretty highly curated. Nevertheless, the fact that we can understand that better, I think, is, is a really important product of feminism. I, It is curious that sort of there are certain histories or historical schools and fields that don't really have a lot of feminist historians in them. For example, historiography is one of them, which I think is interesting. So there's still, I think, some underlying work there about, you know, that the real history isn't sort of the domain of women, perhaps. Military history is another example where there really isn't a lot of sort of feminist military history being done. And, and, you know, to a degree, feminist history has its own label rather than being a sort of a a universal application of all history. But having said that, despite those caveats, I really think it has absolutely um, shaken Australian history to its core.
0: Yeah, I certainly agree. I think that when I've come across domains in history, there are some that seem to have been less touched by feminist thought and and a gendered lens and very resistant at times, I think. And it just kind of seems like there's still this invisible force field (laughs) that's trying to push women away.
1: Yeah, I agree. And there's the kind of assumptions about what real history is or something that, that, yeah, absolutely. I definitely sense that. And you sort of worry that you're being too kind of histrionic if you keep banging on about feminism but actually it just the fact that we even have this conversation now shows that there's still quite a lot of work to be done no doubt
0: yeah absolutely and well one of the great points that um that you make through Marilyn Lake at the end of that chapter is about the idea that you just have to look at the index yes. at the back of a history book. And if you can't see men as a subject or an entry, then we really haven't gotten anywhere because that means that men are just expected as this kind of universal subject. That's right.
1: They're the assumed subjectivity is male um, and women might be a subject entry in the index but not men. It's just so, so telling, isn't it? The yeah. Back? Um, you know, how far we have to go still in terms of gender analysis. It's so
0: revealing. Because you do check and there's always a women's section. Yeah, that's right. Like,
1: always. always. <laughs> and in fact, you know, I've been studying history now for 20 years and I don't reckon I've ever looked up men in the index, which is also pretty telling about my education mm. and, and my where I, what, my own underlying assumptions about who is the assumed category.
0: Yeah, that is really Interesting. I wanted to bring in a related field in a way because we've been talking about women as history makers and women historians and also, I guess, then thinking about the democratisation of history. And one field... That perhaps anyone listening might be familiar with is family history, Mm. because I know that it's become so popular with the rise of ancestry.com. But there's also, you know, Trove, which is a database that so many people love, you know, spending hours in, including myself. And I just wondered when we're thinking about family history and history making, and also the gendered element of family history, what are your reflections on how family history? presents both a positive development perhaps to history and this expansion of what's included in historiography, but then also what some of its
1: challenges might be? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, there's there's no denying the kind of boom in family history in recent years. And I think the British historian Alison Light wrote a very kind of charming newspaper article a couple of years ago where she said um, family history has become the third most searched item on the internet after shopping and porn Uh, which gives you a sense of of where it figures, you know, in our sort of day-to-day lives. It is a thing that we can all have access to. It's at our fingertips, as you say, and it's at our fingertips because of technology, all of these amazing digitised archives, and we have the internet, um, and many of us are kind of wealthy enough to have access to the internet and have the education in order to to use it. But it does present some really interesting questions for the history profession. Democratisation has obviously, you know, really pushed out the sort of questions about, about who's a historian and, and who can tell history in such powerful and important ways uh, and even just the sort of recognition of, you know, for example, oral history has been so important in the telling of national stories that have been sort of ignored for so long, such as Aboriginal child removal. It was kept alive in families as family history, right? So that's so, so sort of mm. fundamental. It's changed Australia's national story in a sense. But there are questions about the relationship between sort of popular and, and kind of everyday history making, such as family history in relation to the to the history discipline, because while they're both important, they're not exactly the same. And there's a lot of overlap there. But how do you, you know, if we're teaching students history, for example, how do you compare and contrast a, a family account from a grandparent or an uncle and auntie to a researched History paper and it, it's kind of does one have more worth than the other? And obviously that depends on what they're about um, and the sort of questions that they're that they're asking of each other uh, of the past. Really, you know, the, there's no family history. You don't need to be a trained historian. You don't need to have the sort of skills of critical analysis. Um, of sort of a gentle critical interrogation of your sources and so on but that's not necessarily what it's trying to do either so I think there is you know there's such a vital place for that in our society and I also think historians could do better at speaking to everyday communities in their writing and how they communicate academic history so that it doesn't feel so kind of elitist if you like but at the same time there's there's I think that does raise really interesting questions again which we come back to that first first point you raised in the beginning of our discussion of you know what is history and who is a historian and and what's the definition of capital H history and 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 lowercase history I think that there I'm not going to come down and and be definitive on this because I actually think it's part of a really creative tension and a productive tension rather than something that's kind of difficult and unhelpful.
0: Yeah, that's right. I think that too, when I was reflecting on, you know, those challenges of how you assess a family history and how it's been produced and what the sources are that have been used. But you do realise that there's a whole source base that is not being tapped really because. It's held within families, and perhaps some people don't even realise they have them. Yeah, uh, and that's why they get into family history, but also that it means that historians don't access that as well. Like that's right. There is that disconnect.
1: There is a disconnect, and also sometimes people don't want historians to access it. So there has to be mm. a kind of a recognition, and and I suppose this comes back to the question of you know living in a settler colonial society, just because we're willing to listen doesn't mean that people necessarily want to tell us as historians. Uh, And sometimes historians need to sit back and step back and let other people be the storytellers. And that's when sort of, you know, family and community history can come into its own, in fact, and be a sort of legitimate um, narrative account of the past, um, if it's given the space um, and the time to, to be allowed to do that.
0: Yeah. I wonder, just because we're heading towards the end of the chat, I wanted to step back now to kind of look at some of those bigger issues. And one was about this idea of revisionism, because often people will hear that word and think of that as a negative. Mm. But as you say in this book, and you quote Don Watson, who is a historian and was speechwriter to Paul Keating, he says that historical revision shouldn't be seen as reactive, but quote, an attempt to find a deeper contemporary meaning in the past. And I was thinking and reflecting on particularly the issues of race and migration and um, Aboriginal history and how, you know, we've this idea of historical revision and it, it being kind of seen as somehow pushing against something and being a challenge. Whereas Don Watson here is kind of suggesting it's a, a deepening and a kind of a different process, really, altogether. So I wondered what your reflections were on the kind of conception of revisionism and its place now today in histories, particularly of the, those issues concerning race.
1: Yeah, um, it's funny, isn't it, how revision has been kind of become a bit of a label. Oh, they're so revisionist, or mm. you know, the revisionist or orthodoxy. But as as that quote from Don Watson shows, you know, history. Part of doing history is inevitable revision. You know, every generation asks questions of the past that are relevant to them. And I think about it when I teach school students about historiography. I say to them, you know, the past is what happened. The past is fixed. You can't change the past. But history is the act of analysis and interpretation of the past. So obviously every interpretation is going to be slightly different. That doesn't mean that doesn't mean they're all equivalent. Um, that doesn't mean that somebody who's, you know, just sort of bashing off some kind of polemic is the equivalent of somebody who's spent sort of 10 years researching it. But they are still interpretations of the past. And of course, they will be revised over time. Revision shouldn't be a dirty word, because history changes over time, and and it's different between between different people. And what's interesting, I think, is understanding that process of interpretation and analysis over time. One of the really great things about studying this you know doing the research for this book was just to see how you could really see trends in and patterns of different prevailing views over time by reading the histories of the day and in a sense I was almost able to kind of get a map or a sort of a like a, a temporal map Of Australia over time by reading its histories I could sort of say oh if you showed me blind now a history book I could almost you know like a wine taster I could almost say oh I reckon that's from the 1890s (laughs) because I can you can just see in in its what it's interested in and the sort of language that it's using and who's included and who's excluded you know by looking at the curation of Australian history over time you can actually almost tell a history of Australia.
0: Oh, that's really interesting that you um, that you've attuned
1: your senses so so <laughs> yeah, it's well. It's <laughs> pretty daggy and nerdy, isn't it? But um, yeah, it is.
0: I'm yeah, I'm impressed. That's a, a skill to keep uh, and to draw on. Um, I was just wanting to finish our conversation, reflecting on influential historians in our lives, and um, I probably should address the elephant in the room, which you also address in this book in the sense that you have, you know, history within your family in the sense of connections to the discipline of history and Manning Clark being your grandfather was a very significant figure in Australian history. As someone who studies history myself, I quite literally have his books. (laughs) Oh wow. (laughs) And they were some of the first ones I ever bought. So um you know I was just reflecting on the fact that, you know, you do bring in to this book the everyday Australians Mm. but also, you know, the historians who've made up the discipline. And I wondered if you had any kind of reflections on who has shaped you as a historian, because I know that, as I mentioned off air, I'd noticed you had quoted Greg Denning quite a lot in your work, and and he certainly resonates with me whenever I have read his views on the role of history. So, yeah, I just love your thoughts on that.
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, it's funny, you know, uh, Manning died when I was 12. So I honestly really never knew him as a historian, but I really loved him as a granddad. So I feel like, of course, I'm shaped by him, but it feels actually, as you are talking about family history, it feels like I was shaped by him in a very family sense of the word. You know, I've read his work, but um, only came to it later as a historian. So it's kind of an interesting uh, Mm. coming together of, of, you know, work clashing with with family life. But in terms of the historians who've really made their mark on me, who I would always pick up, you know, it's been doing this book, actually, that has made me think about that more. And the two that come to mind, or probably the three that come to mind the most, are Greg Denning, who you mentioned, who I hadn't read a huge amount of before I was researching this book, uh, and Inga Clendinen, and Tom Griffiths, um, who's an environmental historian. And in the case of Inge and, and Greg, you know, I never studied under them. They were quite well-known ethnographic historians. But I think what I'm drawn to in their work, and I actually haven't thought about this till this question, so it's quite timely, is because they're ethnographic historians, they're really interested in trying to understand the gaps uh, and, you know, what's not in the sources as well as what's in the sources. So they're always trying to understand, um, you know, trying to understand different points of view in terms of of what happened. So if you think about the contact zone that you mentioned before, we only have certain sources uh, that are written down for you know, first contact, for example, in what's now known as Sydney in 1788. They're only written from one from one point of view. So how do we tell that incomplete story? And I'm, I'm, I, I gravitate towards them because they're always interested in the incomplete, that we're never 100% sure of because so much has gone unsaid and so much will remain unknown. And, and as, as Denning says, you know, the sand has been kind of blown away from that encounter. Um, so I, I like I like their hesitation and I, I like the fact that they want to imagine their way into the past but they don't presume to know it all. You know, they don't presume that they can understand it all but they do, but they still attempt that kind of leap of imagination. It's like an educated leap, I suppose. And I think Tom Griffiths does that too, but it, what what I love about his work is that it's, it's very compassionate uh, and thoughtful, but it's also very grounded in place. And one of the things I was struck by in writing about Australian historians is how how they have figured this place that we now know as Australia um, and how even the kind of landscape, how history has registered the landscape changes over time. So that would be my three go-tos, I reckon. Well, I
0: would very much agree with those. And I just kind of really loved this one quote from Greg Denning, which I wanted to end this conversation on, uh, which I think you've partially quoted before in one of your own chapters. Mm. For me, giving the dead a voice has been reason enough for my history. I'm with Karl Marx too. The function of my history is not so much to understand the world as to change it. If my history by story and reflection disturbs the moral lethargy of the living to change in their present the consequences of their past, then it fulfils a need. I have not silenced any voice by adding mine. And I just felt that that was a really interesting perspective from a historian mm. to kind of put out there, uh, kind of a bold one as well um, because it might challenge some others who wouldn't do that. But, yeah, I just wanted to end it there and it resonated for some reason with me kind, you know quite deeply.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. There's a kind of a real act of um, recognition that can go on with history and historical research that that people's lives do matter, and that uh, again it comes back to that sort of that act of listening, doesn't it? Like mm. you know, there's a real there's a real ethics in doing history. That's 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 a kind of a listening sort of history, listening out for the voices and also listening for the silences and trying to fill in those gaps. It's, yeah, it's a lovely idea.
0: Perfectly said, Anna. Thank you so much for taking the time to reflect on this so beautifully and generously. And I really do hope that people can pick up your book, which is extensive. We have not even touched um, half of the topics that you get to cover (laughs) in this book. So there's much more to be delved into. And it's called Making Australian History. Uh, it's out through Penguin, and I've just been speaking with Anna Clark. Thank you so much, Anna, for taking the time to chat with us today.
1: Oh, thanks, Amy. It was really lovely to talk with you. I'm Amy Mullins, and you've been
0: listening to the Uncommon Sense podcast. Uncommon Sense is a radio show broadcast on 3 R FM in Melbourne every Tuesday between 9am and 12pm.